Oh, Holy that was... fuck, that was nice. I don't care if you send me a message on Discord. I'm going to ignore it out of spite. You get a you get a plea of help from Jack on Discord. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! Nah, Jack's walking the plank. As should Ezra. Fucking assholes. Both, Both of them. Yar. Anyways, yeah, Cal, I crushed my balls in the hydraulic vice. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't expecting Garrison. I think he takes like enjoyment in that or something. Oh, yeah, we're giving him a reaction. He's just like a bully. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah. You know, Cal's bullying us with Discord notifications. You know what? The right thing to do is to bully. (laughs) I I am going to contact Zencaster, and I'm going to tell them (laughs) to suspend your account without refunding you. Just for that. Uh, I'm going to have way, way, way too much fun with this. <laughs> it's going to be a long night, Harrison. You better go uh, grab some whiskey or something. I would, but i got to get up early, so. Ugh, <laughs> uh, boy. Yeah, so, yeah, oh boy is right. See, I'm on the, uh, the good old uh, peppermint tea, because last night it was, uh, it was boys' night out. With my hockey team for the end of the season stuff, and did you win? Got up. Uh, no, I think we came like uh, seven out of twelve, maybe Actually, seven out bad. of eleven. Like, yeah, you're 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 solidly middle of the pack, below there. average. Well, I mean, well, considering last I year, know, I don't know. If you're saying, like, it's, it's, yeah, maybe it technically is below average, but like it's so close to average, it's kind of average. And by the time that you're average, like, come on, you think about it, if you're average, you're basically leading the pack. So, like, it's slightly above average. Is this like, what you tell your girlfriend? Average. Anyways, moving on. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, because last year we came like not dead last. Yeah, no, we came dead last. It's just the uh, the the grade below us didn't want to do a relegation promotion game, so that's how we stayed in it. So, so you would say that you guys have been growing the, uh, this year? Mm, more just luck. Hey, we'll uh, take what we can get. Yeah, I was going to say we can. <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah. So, but yes, yeah, so I'm not drinking tonight because I got up to what. 10 beers and two scotches last night. My body's going, sitting there going, hey, 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 what, what do you think you're doing? Do you think you're 21 year old? You, you think you're 21 <laughs> years old now? No, 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 we're not. Cut that shit out. So, yeah. <laughs> Just wait Fair till enough. fucking IPMS next year. We're going to get fucked up. Oh, yeah. Get That's going to be fucked. Pretty much. We'll go crash the, uh, the Mojo Dojo. What hey, the we're the Micro Machines podcast, <laughs> and we're here to get fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Walking with like an excessive number of chains made out of like hardware store stuff. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> have you like have you not like seen the way that Jack and I act like at the hobby stores? We walk in with like large chains around our necks. We we, we pretend like spending a hundred dollars is actually a large amount of money. 
Well, I mean, hang on. For us, we peasants, the... it is. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. You know that video of the ginger cat I posted? The little kitten? Yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't watched well, you it, but sure. Yeah. It li- I literally just watched it. I got the uh, windows right in front of me with the curtains closed to stop the light coming in. And I literally just saw its shadow just walking across it. Little bastards climbing around my house. Good. You mean Good. his house? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it's his house now. Did you not get the updated lead on the mortgage? <laughs> Ah. Oh well, shall we start this thing? Yes, you are listening to the Micro Machines podcast. I guess at this point, off our summer hiatus officially. Uh, and this week, we will have Callum talking about British World War One heavy tanks. But before then, shall we do some introductions, fellas? Sure thing. So you got me, Callum, from New Zealand. As uh, said before, drinking a peppermint tea because I'm not as young as I think I am. Got me, Garrison, here in Kansas. Just getting over being sick, so I'm drinking a uh, a peach water from Pura Aqua, painting on some figures, and, and being harassed by Callum. Wow. Yeah, no shit, bitch. Wait your fucking turn. Wow. Damn it, Callum! Callum, <laughs> Callum you bastard. <laughs> See? Point fucking proven. Ugh. And then you got me, Dennis, in Ontario, currently sipping on an instant coffee because I got to stay up all night to chastise Callum for using this. <sighs> He's fucking doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the best bit is when I do it, it, the recording picks it up, whereas you guys do it, it doesn't. So, so you know, Callum, all of the people who listen, like all five of the people who listen to our podcast are going to be listening to it, and then they're going to keep checking their phones for Discord. <laughs> if they have it. Yeah, it's fun to screw with people. The people who don't have Discord are going to be like, what kind of notification sound is that? Why is my phone going off? <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's been a hot minute since Dennis has been on, because yes, reasons. So, we're going to do something a bit cool. I decided I'm going to talk about the British World War One tanks, because they are... Well, they're one of my favorites, you know, because they're the... They're, they're literally the start of everything armored, so that that's why I like them, you know. You know, so if we go to the first page, so the no man's land problem. Of course, during the First World War, it was all trench warfare and it became a giant stalemate. You got trenches on either side. You got the Germans and Austro-Hungarians on one side. You got the French, the British, the Americans, eventually, um, you know, everyone else on one side. Right in between them is a big no man's land of nothing except barbed wire and machine gun boxes, um, nests, and stuff like that. And don't forget all the dead people, horses, and the Mark V tank that's stuck. Well, we'll get there. We'll get to that. So, the British. Especially, we're looking at ways of breaking the stalemate. The Germans basically, by the by, this time of the war, about 1916, decided they weren't getting anywhere uh, far, so they decided to dig in and just said, "Right, we're here. We're going to try and stay." The British, the French, everyone else decided, "No, we're not doing that." But in order to get to the German lines, they had to cross through literal seas of barbed wire. I mean, just looking at, like, say, the top left photo. 
that's just a small section it's just this intricate barbed wire and there have been many attempts to get through all of this um using artillery but of course artillery against barbed wire isn't really effective just because barbed wire is too thin for artillery to really do anything and then all the artillery did was just destroy the ground around it and made it even worse to get try and get through now you could try and go across it like that guy on the top left but even then you got the machine guns and everyone everyone else to deal with so there's not ideal so basically in 1916 they had this problem how the hell do we get through past all the barbed wire the machine gun post all of that well there's uh, been many attempts there were many attempts at trying to figure out vehicles that could do it you know tractors armored tractors stuff like that but again you have the bog you've got the the boggy water, uh, land and all of that so you need something specialized for going over this kind of ground russian infantry enters the chat <laughs> <laughs> So this is the problem. So we're going to come up. We're going to go to the uh, next uh, slide, which is the start of the solutions. Oh, little Willie! So we have <laughs> <laughs> little Willie, or also known uh, the little Willie was had a uh, prior. The bottom left, you see, that was the Lincoln engine Mark One, I, I believe it was called. Little Bur- little Willie's wearing a hood. <laughs> some willies have hoods some willies don't uh, but anyway so <laughs> this was this was one of the solutions so they, they were looking at using uh, tractors to try and get over except machine guns protection all of that you got trenches so initially they built little willy which was purely a test subject uh, there was plans to um, put a turret in the top, a rotating turret, but that was deemed to be too top top heavy, and they wanted it to be low down. In theory, this would have had about six crewmen, two driving, and four on machine guns and stuff like that. But it didn't. This one was purely a conceptual design of can we do this? Uh, what what's sort of needed? So you can see, you know, it's got the same sort of uh, tracks as say the whippet or you know just like post-war stuff but they decided that they didn't want this sort of design uh, mainly for trench crossings Uh, initially they wanted something to drive over barbed wire and drive over trenches whilst not being protected from machine gunners so it's a pretty modern looking design to, yeah, to be fair, it is. I mean, Bob Simple had a. There is the. I will say there is absolutely no suspension on the little Willy at all. Like that. Oh God. That's all fixed, so um, yeah. you feel everything. Oh God. So, it was just purely like they did trial it uh, out in the field. They uh, even the name the ta- uh, tank was a deception from the from the Germans because they didn't want them to know what they were. So what they were bringing up, so they called them tanks, like water tanks, stuff like that. And the name just kind of stuck, as you know, known as the tank. But I don't think they had another name for it. Well, not for the uh, the type of uh, vehicle, to be honest. So, but basically, Little Willie was this just the sort of test prototype. Okay, what can we do? You know, it, and it, they followed a lot. Of, they used a lot of uh, concepts from it, um, and they also changed a lot. Primarily moving the tracks from being around a uh, 
sort of halfway up the uh, vehicle to going up and over to allow for a much greater trench crossing. That was the main focus of getting over trenches because they're a bastard and a half. So after Little Willie, you came across the uh, Mark I or the Mother, which we're going to talk about later. But eventually they decided on the this design. I'm going to go through a basic description of the Mark I and earlier tanks, you know, because they are very different to what we know as a tank. You know, for us, a, a tank has track um, tracks with a uh, decent suspension on it. You got a turret that rotates round. You got one gun on it. You know, we we know what a tank is, don't we? However, right. the early British uh, heavy tanks, the Mark One and onwards, very different. You got sponsons on the side and stuff like that. So, I've got I've got my script here. I might I might as well follow it for a little bit. Aye. So, the Mark One tank was a unique rhomboid vehicle, characterized by a low center of gravity and extended track length, enabling it to traverse rough ground and across trenches with relative ease. Its primary primary armament was housed in sponsons positioned along the sides of the hull. Internally, the tank had an undivided hull, where the crew shared the same confined space with the engine. Fuck that. Yeah. (laughs) And the smell. This this arrangement created an extremely unpleasant environment inside. Ventilation was inadequate, leading to contamination of the air with toxic carbon monoxide, engine fuel, and oil vapors, as well as cordite fuel cordite fumes from the weaponry. Temperatures inside the tank could soar to a scorching 50 degrees Celsius or 122 Fahrenheit. <laughs> Crew members would sometimes lose consciousness within the tank, and frequently they would collapse upon exiting into fresh air. These symptoms suggest carbon monoxide poisoning, but the high temperatures and humidity inside were also identified as potential contributing factors. Yeah, no fucking shit. <laughs> I love how like the, the British designers were like, yeah, let's just put this very large, inefficient like engine right in the middle of the shared space. Like no firewall, no muffler, nothing. Just like, yeah, fuck it, put the engine right there. Yeah. Because why not, I guess. Yeah, well, so well why the fuck not? Well, because it was like, you know, back back in the year, you know, 1910s. Engine, the whole idea of keeping the engine separate was, you know, they hadn't really come across that yet, had they? Not in literally nothing. No. Now, to counter the risks of bullet splash or fragments dislodged from the interior hull, the crews were equipped with leather and chainmail masks. Additional leather helmets were issued to protect their heads from potential hazards within the tank. Gas masks were a standard issue, reflecting the broader use of chemical weapons during that period of the war. There was one downside. Well, there was a lot of downsides to these uh, leather helmets and all that. Do you know what, what the biggest downside to them were? Uh, the you weight? You can't see out of them? No. From a distance, they look like German helmets. Oh, what the fuck? Oh, no. So what would happen is uh, more than often, a tank crew would have to bail out because their, crank, their tank got disabled. They would bail out to be shot, by, shot at by their own comrades because they... From a distance, they look like Germans because they wore tanker um, overalls, so they're different from infantry. And they had helmets that looked very similar to the German ones. So, you know, of course, in the heat of battle, you just go for what you see. So there was that one downside to them. And also they were quite uncomfortable and didn't work that well, but they did look cool as hell, especially with the chainmail on them. So, uh, you know, 
I, I give them props for aesthetics of looking awesome. I will say it's kind of neat to see like the naval uh, architecture influences on the tank with the sponsons on the side. Like that's something that you could only develop if you thought like tanks were ships on land. Yeah, well, that, that's why they called designated them land ships. Uh, another fun fact: Do you know who they recruited to be gunners? Who is that? Uh, they recruited naval gunners. So they went to the Navy and grabbed a whole bunch of naval gunners because naval gunners were more used to shooting large caliber on the move when things are bouncing and stuff because you know, they're on the sea. So they're used to sort of compensating for that. So they, so they actually did a good thing, got a whole bunch of naval gunners, converted them into tank, tank gunners because these, uh, a lot of these were traversed uh, in elevation using uh, shoulder, shoulder pads and you physically move the uh, gun up and down. Jesus, talk about some strong legs and traps. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, these are only... Uh, Tommy's coming the, home ripped. <laughs> they're not the biggest guns. So, And they were, they were counterbalanced and all that, so you could move it up and down with relative ease. So they used uh, naval uh, gunners because they were just more used to shooting on the move. So that, in that respect, that makes way more sense than trying to train guys to shoot and then figure out how to compensate and stuff. So the initial 8mm side armour provided a degree of protection against small arms fire, but it could be penetrated by the newly developed armour-piercing K-bullets introduced in the mid-1917. There were also the constant threat of infantry assaults and grenade attacks. Subsequent tank generations featured thicker armour, rendering them nearly impervious to K-bullets. In response, the Germans developed the 13.2mm Mauser 1918 T. Gewehr anti-tank rifle. Uh, people call that the uh, what was the name called, given to that rifle after the war? What was it the elephant gun? Uh, what was it in German? It was no. the um, Gewehr Panzer, Panzer Gewehr, something like oh, yeah, that. Panzer Gewehr, yeah, Panzer yeah, Gewehr. That's one. yeah. Oh, uh, you know, but, it was tank Gewehr, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But of course, that was given after the war because no, it was. Yeah, it was Panzer or Kvir? Because at that time, the Germans didn't even have the word, a word for um, tank. At the time, they had not yet developed the word Panzer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's tank Kvir. So, uh, as so as well was introduced a bunch charge called. Oh fuck off! It was a bu- basically uh, it was a bunch charge consisted of several um, hand grenades bundled together for a uh, larger explosion. Something that continued on during the second world war as well actually must have worked or Those you're just that desperate crazy against infantry mm. i did like the uh, the soviet one they developed uh, those ones look cool so near misses by artillery or mortar shells could rupture the fuel tanks which were positioned high in the front horns of the track frames on either side of the driver's area causing oh, a perfect. fire hazard perfect <laughs> Nothing that could ever happen <laughs> when you surround your drivers with fuel and let their armored fuel tanks. Up, up at his bloody head. Yeah. Um, a direct hit from any artillery shell was more than sufficient to breach the tank's armor and destroy it. Incinerated crews were retrieved by specialized salvage companies who also salvaged damaged tanks. They would have needed... I, I mean, honestly, I don't really understand why you're referencing like a direct hit from artillery because like the First World War was famous for not having mass concentrations of artillery around the front line. Well, occasionally you get lucky. <laughs> Although, 
You know the uh, mortars, the mortars that the Germans used. Please don't tell me they direct fired those at these. Yeah, they could, and they did. By the, <laughs> by the oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, uh, question. You know yep. how like some of the males and females had like that wedge, like they had the cope cage, right? Yeah. Like, well, I guess it's not a cage. It's a cope screen, cope gazebo, if you will. Was was that what it was for? No, that was for hand grenades. Oh, fair enough. But then um, it was quite rare for a German to actually get too close to the tank for that, so it didn't really they didn't really see a need for it. But no, the German mortars. Uh, I think Garrison see them seen them in Isonzo. You know, you, the yes. uh, they got like a full recoil system and everything. Well, those by the end of the war they were put up higher, and they could they they are, they are capable of direct fire. I mean, they're small, but they were effective. So they'd use those as direct fire against tanks. So steering the tank was a challenging endeavor, accomplished by adjusting the speed of the two tracks. Four crew members were required for this task. Two drivers, oh, one of <laughs> yeah, two drivers, one of whom were also served as the commander and operated the brakes. Two gearsmen, each responsible for the secondary gears of one track. Communication was hindered by the deafening noise within the tank. The driver would signal the gearsmen using using head gestures often by striking the engine block with a heavy wrench. For minor course <laughs> corrections, the driver could use... <laughs> Why doesn't it fucking work? <laughs> oh, there it goes. Start hammering it, man. A little percussive therapy. <laughs> For minor course corrections, the driver could utilize the steering tail, a substantial contraption dragged behind the tank, consisting of two large wheels that could be locked in place by pulling at a steel cable, causing the entire engine the entire vehicle to slide in the de- desired direction. In the event of an engine stall, the, ge- the gearsman would employ a starting handle, a large crank situated between the engine and the gearbox. Many of these early tanks suffered breakdowns during the heat of battle, making them vulnerable to German gunners. So that's all they did. The Germans just waited for them to break down. <laughs> you can- Man, you know, you know what would be great? Yeah. If they added these into, like, Verdun or yeah, mainly Verdun, because that's the most frontline trench warfare you'll see. And I think if they did it, they would make it so realistic that it was a nuisance to use. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that would be really cool, like, having a, uh, like, especially in VR as well. Oh, God, yes. Ooh. So, to make, uh, to uh, continue on with the hellish description of these early tanks... The tanks lacked wireless communication radio. Instead, they relied on two carrier pigeons, which had their own small exit hatches in the sponsons, and they communicated with the, with command posts using runners. Due to the noise, noisy and vibrating interior, early experiments were, had shown the radios were impractical. Basically, they'd shake themselves apart. Thus, the tanks were equipped with lamps, flags, semaphore signaling, colored discs, and carrier pigeons as standard equipment across various various mark models during world war one british propaganda extensively promoted tanks as a revolutionary ve- weapon that would swiftly secure victory tanks featured prominently in films and popular songs of the era becoming symbols of hope and innovation when in reality they were metal hell holes to operate work in and it was a very painful way to go are uh, are you talking about world war one tanks or are you talking about russian t-72s because uh <laughs> Sounds like a lot of the same shit. <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> so there was a basic description, but we're going to go into depth because there were about ten. There's about ten marks 
of the British heavy tanks throughout the war. And we're going to go through all the differences. So there was one more interesting feature. And of course, now that you have a multiple vehicles and whatnot, now you've got multiple divisions, battalions, all of that, you need to tell them all apart, don't you? But now you've got to figure out a way to do that. If we go to the next slide, please, Dennis. So we have, so we're going to have a quick little word about markings because they changed over time. Now, at the top left, we have a Mark One. At the bottom right, we have a Mark Five. Warhammer ass looking tanks. Yeah. <laughs> so initially, British tanks sported a four-color camouflage scheme, meticulously crafted by the artist Solomon Joseph. It would be a pain in the ass to paint on. It would well, be. you remember that uh, French B One that they were? Uh... Yep. Uh, they paint a forest onto. Yep. Yeah, I feel like this is the same idea. Yeah, basically. Bro, imagine painting this, and then, like, you slap its ass like a horse, and it walks away into battle, and then just a fucking arty round slams into it and destroys it. <laughs> <laughs> so they had this four-color camouflage when they were first put into the uh, service. However, it was soon discovered that these intricate camouflage paint designs became redundant as the tanks swiftly became caked in mud during operations. Consequently, in late 1916, the Solomon scheme was abandoned and the tanks were uniformly painted in a single dark brown shade, although it seems like a lot of people just depict them as dark green. And they were dark green and dark brown, so you can do either or. I kind of prefer the dark green, to be honest. So, towards the rear of each tank, a unique serial number consisted consisting of three, four, or five digits were painted in either white or yellow during the manufacturing process. At the front of the tank, a prominent tactical marking was displayed, featuring a prefix letter indicating the company or battalion, along with a numerical identifier. Training tanks omitted the prefix letter and featured three numbers. Some tanks even had their tactical numbers painted on the roof for aerial recognition purposes. Subsequently, red and white vertical stripes were added to the front of the tank to, in, to aid in identification, especially after the Germans became, began fielding captured British tanks, or the uh, Butte Panzers. Many tanks were bestowed with individual names, which were occasionally painted on the exterior of vehicles. In a few rare cases, tanks were adorned with artwork akin to the nose art often seen on aircraft. That's cool. Like the fucking high five? Yeah. Right that, there? <laughs> that's actually pretty, that's cool. That is cool. I want to do that on a model. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've been talking uh, a little bit about all the tanks, so let's start going through all the variations, because it's one of those that doesn't look like there's a lot of differences, but then there are a lot of differences, and then suddenly it goes to very different. So, the Mark I heavy tank, the very first one. So the initial tank earned the designation Mark I, as subsequent tank design, designs were developed. Among the Mark I tanks, those armed with two six-pounder and three 303 Hotchkiss machine guns were referred to as male tanks, while those equipped with four Vickers machine guns and one Hotchkiss were known as female tanks. These terms were credited to Ernest Swinton. To assist in steering, a, a pair of large wheels were initially added to the rear of the tank. However, their effectiveness fell short of expectations, leading to their eventual, eventual removal. Subsequent iterations, including the Mark II, III, IV, and V, as well as later tank models, retained a strong, re re uh, fuck, strong resemblance to the original mother tank. Now, I'm going to go on a little side note about a particular vehicle, because occasionally pe uh, people get uh, the tank and gun carriers mixed up. 
So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Gun Carrier, and you guys should definitely look up the Gun Carrier because it looks freaking amazing. So the, the Gun Carrier Mark I represented a distinct design tailored to transport and, de and deploy field guns and, or howitzers that could be fired directly from the vehicle itself. However, during, during its service, its primary role predominantly shifted towards the transportation of essential supplies and ammunition. A total of 40, 48 Gun Carrier Mark I units were manufactured. So I'm just saying that because a lot of the Mark One, you got the Mark One tank, then you got Mark One gun carrier, and they often got confused. They are actually two separate vehicles, even separate designs. So I'm just pointing out that these are two different things, and they look amazing as well. Just pointing that out. So the initial production plan for the Mark One called for collaboration between Fosters and Metropolitan, with Fosters responsible for producing 25 units and Metropolitan tasked with producing 75. Metropolitan, due to its greater production capacity, located at the old park site of the Patent Shaft Company, a subsidiary of Metropolitan based in Winsbury, was also awarded an additional order for 50 units. This strategic allocation allowed the Army to form six, camp six tank companies, each consisting of 25 tanks, and paved the way for, for further production under the, under the auspices of the old Oldbury Wagon and Carriage Company. As the available supply of six pounder guns fell short of the requirement for all 150 tanks, a decision was made to equip half of them solely with machine guns. This led to the developmental the development of the of a novel sponsor and design featuring two Vickers machine guns enclosed within rotating shields. Later in the course of the war, as newer tank models came in certain into service, certain Mark I tanks were repurposed for supply transportation duties. Additionally, a handful of female Mark I tanks were adapted into mobile wireless stations by integrating a wireless transmitter. However, it's worth noting that the radio equipment could only be operated when the tank was stationary and had erected a tall mast to support the aerial array. I'm going to ask you two a question. When it came to clearing out trenches, what was better, the male or the female? I'd imagine the uh, female, because you have the machine guns on the female, so that I think realistically... That would probably be more effective. Garrison, what do you think? The fucking trench gun, baby, with the fucking bayonet. Oh, Some God. 16-year-old American. Ugh. No, I agree with 16-year-old Marine juiced up on, like, roids since he was five years old from Wisconsin. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> but, yeah, uh, the females were found to be more effective at clearing trenches, whereas the male tanks were better at dealing with fortifications. So did they use them like a like a leap and bound, like a leapfrog method, like the male would sit back and hammer the defenses while the female would just move up and lay waste on trenches? I don't think they even thought about that. I'd say that I'd say they were uh, leaps and bounds. With these tanks, once you got them moving, you basically wouldn't you tried not to make them stop. Because uh, they were very difficult to actually start up and get them over. Especially in mud and stuff, you just need to keep that momentum forward. So, yeah, basically they'd just roll over a trench and two machine guns would just start hammering down up and down them. Because, I mean, trenches, the tanks would try and stay in lines as well. So, Fair enough. <clears throat> so that was the Mark 1. You can see a, an original black and white photo showing the four-color four camo. Then you have the colorized on the uh, bottom there. But, yeah. If we could go to the next slide, please. We have the Mark II. 
So the Mark II represented an evolutionary step forward from the Mark I, incorporating a series of minor improvements. However, despite these enhancements, the Army deemed the Mark I still insufficiently developed for active duty, uh, active deployment. Consequently, although orders for the Mark II were initiated in July, they were primarily primarily designated for training purposes. Due to their intended role in training, it was believed these Mark II tanks were outfitted with unhardened steel armour, although some scepticism arose regarding this claim in early 1917. Initially, 20 Mark II tanks were dispatched to France, while an additional 25 were retained at the training facility in Wool, Dorset, within Britain. The remaining five were airmarked for use as test vehicles. As the expected Mark IV tanks had not arrived by early 1917, a decision were, was made, despite objections from Stern, to transport the 25 training vehicles from Britain to France. There, they joined the existing 20 Mark IIs and 15 Mark Is in preparation for the Battle of Arras in April 1917. It's worth noting that at Arras, the Germans managed to penetrate the armour of both Mark I and Mark II tanks using their armour-piercing machine gun ammunition. The production of the Mark II took place between December 1916 and January 1917, with Fosters and Co. and Metropolitan handling the construction of 25 male and 25 female tanks, respectively. Five of the Mark II tanks were allocated for exper experimentation involving improvised power plants and transmissions. These tanks were entrusted with to various firms, which were tasked with showcasing the enhancements they could make over the Mark I system through an open competition. During the demonstrations held in March 1917, only three of these tanks were able to compete effectively alongside the Mother tank, which is the very first Mark I, which had been equipped with a Daimler petrol electric system. It became evident that Wilson's epicyclic gear system, replacing the secondary gear and gearsmen, offered superior performance and subsequently adopted in later tank designs. So, Mark II, not a lot to it. I mean, there is a good there is a good photo of it in France. The uh, Lustania is that Lustania? I don't know. It does look good though. That'd make a neat little diorama. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that first the uh, the one at the top left that's a that's actually uh, that was captured by the Germans. That one. Are those track extensions on it? Like they yep. look almost like duck belt. Yeah. Yeah. They, they put Vinta track extensions on. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> duck belt. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear okay if we go to the uh next we've got the mark three heavy tank which uh again you're not seeing too many uh changes within it so the mark three served as a training tank and was armed with lewis machine guns in the case of the female version it featured a smaller sponson a total of 50 mark three tanks were manufactured originally the mark three was planned to incorporate all the proposed new design elements of the mark four this is why there are this is why there were two distinct training variants, with the Mark II essentially representing a slightly enhanced version of the Mark I. However, progress in developing these new features for the Mark IV was exceptionally slow, resulting in gradual transition from the Mark II. We go to the next one. <clears throat> so, Ooh. we have the Mark IV. The Mark IV is kind of the iconic That's World War classic, I British heavy tank. Yeah, it is. It's the classic design. It's uh, one that's uh, I think it was the one that was produced the most, or it was the Mark V. But yeah, when you when you think of World War One heavy tank, this is the one you think of, and this one you could go. We could do a full episode just on the Mark IV, but we won't. We're just doing. We're just covering the whole series. So the Mark IV represented an upgrade and more heavily armored iteration of the Mark One, 
commencing production in May 1917. Originally, these were Originally, there were plans for fundamental mechanical enhancements, but these had to be deferred. The primary alteration was the adoption of the quick-firing 6-pounder 6CWT Hotchkiss, a shorter-barreled variant of the earlier gun. The implementation of improved 12mm armour rendered it impervious to German armour-piercing rifle bullets. Both the male and female variants of the Mark IV initially featured Lewis guns in place of the Hotchkiss and Vickers machine guns. However, issues arose with the air cooling system of the Lewis gun, leading to the subsequent re-adoption of the Hotchkiss machine gun. Imagine my shock. The uh, the tank with the literal engine right beside the uh, Lewis gun is leading the issues with the air cooling system. Can you imagine? Oh, who, who would have thought? I cannot. Notably, the Mark IV stored all its fuel in a single external tank, strategically positioned between the rear track horns in an effort to enhance crew safety. Hey! So they just put the bastard on, on the outside. Well done. Good job. Uh, <laughs> they should have uh, encased it with armor. <laughs> nah, nah, Garrison. Come on, come on, man. Come on, give him some credit. Uh, don't you think that's a little generous? You know, I mean, we don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, eh? <laughs> Sorry. I'm looking in, it in the mouth. <laughs> in terms of transport, transport, transportability, fuck me, I am having a stroke today. I have, something's wrong with me. The Mark IV introduced the innovation of smaller sponsons that could be swung inwards on hinges. This this design allowed for this design allowed for a reduction in the tank's width, making it more compatible with rail transportation. Previous models had necessitated partly disassembling to fit with the loading gauge. Rails mounted on the roof supported an unditching beam designed to assist in freeing the tank from challenging trenches by attaching it to the tracks, as you can see in the bottom right photo. Production figures for the Mark IV totaled 1,220 units, comprising of 420 males, uh, 595 females, and 205 tank tenders, which are essentially supply tanks. There's one thing that people really don't understand about World War I and tanks, and that's the number of tanks that were built. You know, everything you see, it's kind of like you think there's like one or two or five or something like that. In reality, you got just one mark alone has 1,200 of them running around Jeez. France. Yeah, they, not they gonna not, lie, I did not realize yeah. there was that many. Yeah, they weren't messing around. Well, I guess yeah. it kind of makes sense too, because like when you look at them, like essentially what you have is flat panels riveted together with some tracks thrown around the outside. Like it's not the most complicated thing in the world to make. Which is also a bad thing. <laughs> well, I'll take the yeah. Look at Russian armor. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark IV tanks demonstrated their effectiveness during the Messines Ridge operation in June 1917, where they outpaced infantry forces on dry terrain. However, during the Third Battle of Ypres in July and August, they struggled on the swampy ground and proved to be limited use. Approximately 432 Mark four tanks were deployed during the Battle of Cambrai in November 1917. A significant historical milestone occurred when Mark IV tanks engaged the first ever engaged in the first ever tank-to-tank battle, facing off against German A7Vs in the Second Battle of Villers-Bretonneux. I apologize to any French speakers. I, I wonder how that initial contact reaction was like were they expecting enemy armor or was it like hey wait a second 
Why is that house moving? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That 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 house is got is moving and it has a gun in it. What the fuck? Wait a second. Wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) I believe um ironically there's some dispute over the Mark, the one Mark V male, the Mark IV male that was there. So they say that it knocked out the A7V after being um, disabled <laughs> itself. However, it's kind of been disputed in, by the fact that a lot of people say that the A7V just happened to find a ditch and flipped <laughs> itself over. <laughs> Sort of a self-kill time of kind of thing. So depends on who you ask. You know what? Fucking first thing on taking engagement, we'll say it got disabled. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if we could go to the uh, next page. Oh yes, we have what the Mark the IV mortar machine. Hole. Also, look at. Uh, I just want to point out on the uh, top was this left photo here. You can see they've actually chalked in the outline of. Yeah, the old one. Yeah, yeah. Oh God! Now, what you're looking at is the Mark IV tadpole. Now, of course, you're getting into 1917. German trenches were getting they're they're wising up to the tank, right? So they'll decide they were trying to build wider wider trenches so the tanks had more difficulty getting over them and stuff like that. So, yet back then the the thought was you just make a longer tank. (laughs) Now to facilitate this. What they did was, instead of creating a brand new tank to do this, the Mark IV Tadpole is a conversion kit. The back of it... made of resin or metal? <laughs> wood. I don't know, both were about as efficient oh, as the God, other. Also wood. <laughs> and what they, what they did was, they, they created the, the tail as just a conversion kit, which, they, uh, which could be done out in the field in France. And all you did was you unbolt the last few panels, remove the um, the fucking sprockets, and then you attach the uh, the tadpole tail to it. Which, in theory, you know, it's it's made the tank still currently the longest ever produced tank in the world. Um, believe it or not, I think it was something like thirty three foot, thirty three feet uh, long, or something like that. Maybe longer. Dude, um, imagine. Imagine you work, you're a mechanic for one of these things, right? Or you fight with one. And you you go the whole war just in tanks and you go home and you're explaining to people what you did in the war. And you're expl- like, and they don't see newsreels or any shit like that, so they've never seen one. Just imagine trying to describe this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, there are a few issues with the whole fact that this is a conversion. One of them was the center of gravity didn't change. And this is a problem because for a tank to climb, especially back then with this rhomboid uh, system, you need all the weight in the back so f- to allow the, ta- the nose to be able to climb up the other side of the trench, right? However, what this did was, with the conversion, the center of gravity never changed, which means that the tank couldn't climb. It was way too heavy in the front. It didn't have enough power to pull the nose up to get over the trenches. Another thing, yeah, another issue was it wasn't very structurally strong. Uh, When a tadpole would try and turn, it was seen that the the entire tail 
would flex and mm. be quite useless. I think they sent over 22 conversion kits or maybe more. They tried them. They didn't like them. They all got converted back into standard Mark IVs and went on with the war by that. <laughs> so it just basically went, yeah, no, this is not going to work. That's so. where the, the loggies come in, right? <laughs> but yeah, so this, this was an attempt to combat wider German trenches. Uh, they went on with different designs anyway. So, the, but yeah, Mark IV Tadpole is a really cool looking vehicle. I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. But ultimately it was useless. Thank you, Dennis. After the Mark IV, we have the Mark V. So the Mark V originally aimed to be a completely new tank design, complete with a wooden mock-up already completed. However, in December 1917, with the new engine and transmission originally intended for the Mark IV became, became available, the initial more advanced Mark V design was scrapped out of concern that it might disrupt ongoing production. Consequently, the Mark V, the designation Mark V was reassigned to an enhanced version of the Mark IV, which did not which did not feature the, the new systems. The initial vision for the Mark IV had been an ambitious upgrade over the Mark III, but was scaled back due to technical setbacks. As a result, the Mark V ended up closely resembling the original design of the Mark IV, essentially a heavily modified Mark III. If you followed that, well done. <laughs> a, total <of> 400, <laughs> a total of 400 Mark IV tanks were manufactured, comprising... 200 males and 200 females. Later, some, some were later converted into hermaphrodites, also known as composites, by fitting one male and one female sponsor, ensuring that each tank was armed with a six-pounder gun. This modification aimed to prevent female tanks from being outgunned when confronted, confronting captured British male tanks in German service or the Germans' own A7V tank. The Mark V made its combat debut in the Battle of Hamel in July 4, 1918 with 60 tanks playing a pivotal role in the successful assault on the German lines by Australian units. It subsequently participated in eight more major engagements during World War I. Additionally, several Mark V tanks were deployed during the Allied intervention of the Russian Civil War, primarily on the side of the White Russians. However, the majority of these tanks were later captured and utilized by the Red Army during the Russian Civil War. Four were retained by Estonian forces, and two found their way found their way into the possession of Latvia. <laughs> Latvia. Good job, Latvia. <laughs> Acquisition of the century right there. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, they were just waiting. The whole yeah. war is waiting. Rubbing yeah. their hands together like with dollar signs in their eyes. You know, I, want, I will say one thing. Hand. That bottom left photo showing the mud and stuff, that is a great reference photo. Do not ever let a judge tell you that your model is overweathered. Especially a World War One, Like, yeah. And or any vehicle that like that looks like that. Yeah, because that yeah, I just love the build up in the back though. It it just looks awesome. Like that, they even have mud on the top of the barrel of the gun barrel. Talking about the Mark V, there are two special variants of the Mark V. If we go to the first one, please. We have the Mark V start. Um, they put asterisks at the end of it, so you have the Mark V with one asterisk and the Mark V with two asterisks. You can call them the, the one star and the two star. I don't know. So the first one, the one star, the Mark the Mark Five one star was an was an extended version of the tank, featuring a lengthened hull that was that added approximately six feet or one point eight meters to its overall size. This modification included a larger cupola on the roof and doors on the side of the hull, 
a departure from previous versions that had either small hatches beneath the sponsons for females or small rear doors for the males, along with a small, rear ha- a small hatch at the rear. The additional section of the Mark IV One Star was specifically designed to accommodate a squad of infantry. This variant weighed approximately 33 tons. An order, an order had been placed for 500 male tanks and 200 female tanks, totaling 700 units in all. By the time of the armistice, 579 of these Mark V one-stars had been constructed. The order was ultimately fulfilled by Metropolitan Carriage in March 1919. So this is basic, This is like World War I Merkava. That that's actually pretty cool. I must admit. Yeah, like, and then we have the uh, the two star. So the Mark Four. So the one star is the top left. The two star is the bottom right. The Mark V two star, due to its extended length, had disrupted its original length to weight ratio. As a consequence, lateral forces during turns became unacceptably high, leading to issues such as thrown tracks and an exceptionally large turning radius. Imagine throwing a track on that thing. That would have been a pain. Uh, I don't know. I, don't, I feel like that would have been a pain. Me, me, me personally, I would be embarrassed by that. Yeah. To address these challenges, Major Wilson undertook a track redesign in May 1918. The new design featured a more pronounced curve in the lower track run, reducing ground contact. And the tracks were widened to 26.5 inches, or 673 millimeters. Additionally, the Mark V engine underwent modification with the bore increased to generate 225 horsepower and it was positioned further back within the hull. The driver's compartment was integrated with the commander's cabin, creating a separate machine gun position at the rear. A revised order for 700 tanks consisting of 150 females and 550 males was initially was initiated to incorporate these changes. However, only 25 of these revised Mark V, Mark v one-star tanks were actually constructed by the end of 1918 only one had been completed <laughs> which is sad but yeah it's, it's funny though you a brand new engine was only 225 horsepower to get 33 tons moving yeah but you were barely moving ah, walking pace is fine we move on this is so we're moving into the uh late the post-war this is where design start deviating a little bit and the first one is the Mark VI. So the Mark VI project, initiated in late 1916, was one of the two concurrent endeavours aimed at advancing tank development. In this dual approach, the Mark V was intended to incorporate as many advanced features as possible within the framework of the Mark I hull design. In contrast, the Mark VI represented a radical departure from the Mark I hull, featuring a completely new design. However, the original concept of the Mark V was never, real, never realised due to delays associated with the Mark IV and a different version of the Mark V was eventually constructed. The Mark VI project called for the creation of a brand new hull design characterized by increased height and rounded track paths. The primary main gun was positioned at the front of the hull. Regrettably, the Mark VI project did not progress beyond the stage of wooden mock-up, and was officially cancelled in December 1917. This decision made was made to enable the development of a tank co-designed with the United States, resulting in the creation of the Mark VIII tank which we'll get to in a second, but there's still one more to go through before we get to that. So you can see the wooden muck-up on the left here. The uh, right-hand the right hand side is a sort of artist's impression of what it would have looked like if it had gone into production. Almost pseudo-turrets coming in. It's not, you know, side sponsons. It's more, yeah, frontal assault stuff. So if we go to the next one, please. We have the Mark 7, which is a very cool-looking uh, 
variant. That is cool. Mark Noth, serving as the technical liaison officer between Stern, Ellis, and Anley, played a significant role in the tank's development. He conceptualized a lengthier version of the Mark I, featuring a williams Janey hydraulic transmission. Notably, one of the Mark IIs employed as a test vehicle had already incorporated a hydraulic transmission. In October 1917, a contract had been was awarded to Brown Brothers in Edinburgh to further advance this line of research. By July 1918, a prototype had been successfully developed. The drive system for this tank was notably complex. A 150-horsepower Ricardo engine-powered variable speed gear pump, uh, limited pumps, which in turn drove two hydraulic motors, each responsible for moving one track through the system of intercon- interconnected chains. To mitigate the risk of overheating, numerous fa- fans, louvers, and radiators were incorporated into design. They're finally thinking about the crew. However, the steering system proved to, however, the steering system proved to be manageable and gradual. Consequently, this version of the tank was approved for f- production to equip to equip a single tank battalion. Although an order f- an order for seventy four units had been placed, only three were constructed, and just one was delivered by the time of the end of the war. Ultimately, in, fa- in favour of the Mark VIII, which was ordered concurrently, this design was set aside. The Mark VIII featured a slightly lengthened hull compared to the Mark V, while no surviving examples of the Mark VII are known to exist. We just have a photo of it. It's basically, a, you get a Mark V and lengthen it a bit. That's what it's like. To be fair, that is a pretty good photo of it. Yeah, that is Like, good out one. of all the ones they could have taken, that's good angle and everything. So, now we go to a very, very different design. Well, not too different. Different. The the core concept is there, but it's a very it's a different design within the concept of the hulls. I hope people understand what I'm saying. <laughs> if they're watching, <clears throat> I think they'll be able to understand it better. Yeah. So we have the Mark Eight Liberty Tank. So, following disagreements with the War Office that led to his removal from his post, Stern was reassigned to a new de- department where he worked on a collaborative tank design project involving the Allies. This initiative aimed to assemble tanks in France with hulls, guns, and their ammunition sourced from the UK and other components, notably the engines, from the USA. American participation in this tank design endeavor ultimately gave rise to the Mark VIII tank, also known as the Liberty or Anglo-American tank, although initially the French played a partial role in the project. The Mark VIII was equipped with a comp compartmentalized engine compartment housing a 330 horsepower Ricardo petrol engine for British tanks and a 300 horsepower Liberty V12 engine for the US variants. This powerful engine propelled the tank weighing 37 long tons or 38 metric tons. The crew, originally consisting of 12 members, later reduced to 10, operated within a Coppola structure that featured rear and forward machine guns. Although plans called for the shared production of 1,500 units, only a single British prototype was completed by the end of World War I. The British constructed just 24 Mark VIII tanks, while the Americans managed to produce 100 units between September 1918 and 1920 at the Rock Island Arsenal. The cost of each American Mark VIII tank was $35,000, or £8,750 at the time, Equivalent to approximately four hundred thirty thousand in two dollars in two thousand and six. Notably, 
About 40 hulls uh, for the U.S. Liberty tanks were manufactured by the Manchester Tank Syndicate, while 11 British-type Mark 8s were built by the North British Locomotive Company. These tanks remained in service and underwent upgrades until the 1930s, when they were transferred to Canada for training purposes. Some 1917 tanks were also sold to Canada at nominal scrap value. The Mark 8 tank itself measures 34 feet 2 inches or 10 meters 10.41 meters in length and stood 10 foot 3 inches or 3.12 meters or 1. Point, I want to say 1.7 columbi an even longer 44 foot uh, variant the Mark 8 One Star had been planned but never produced. By the 1930s, the Mark 8 tank had been had become outdated due to its slow speed of less than 6 miles an hour and with thin armour of only 16 to 6 millimetres. However, it boasted one of the longest independent track uh, trench crossing capabilities of any armoured fighting vehicle ever created. Subsequent tanks relied on bridge-laying vehicles to cross large and deep trenches. Isn't Vargas scale model Vargas model models yeah, making one of these? Yep. Yeah, I I need that off of my. It, it looks really cool. I think that I think there's one in uh, there's one in Bovington, isn't there? There's I a Liberty tank there. I think I I swear I have a photo of it. Ooh, now we are come to the Mark Nine, and I think Dennis is going to like this one. There's a reason for the big doors. I, I'm 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 seeing doors. And it, it, I, I, my mind is immediately thinking nuclear reactor for some reason. <laughs> it's got those. It's got the doors, isn't it? So the Mark Nine served as a troop carrier and infantry supply vehicle, marking Ooh. one of the Ooh. marking one of the early tracked armored personnel carriers, including. Yep. Excluding experimental variants based on lengthened Mark V. Out of an initial order of 200 Mark IX vehicles, a total of 34 are constructed. And this is going to annoy Dennis. That top left one, that's the one at Bovington. You see how there's stairs in it? I'm guessing they probably have like a, a little, you know, bar over the entrance so you can walk up to the, you can walk up to it, but you can't go inside. You can go inside it. Fuck. You go in one side and come out the other side. Fuck you, Cal. <laughs> I love I love making Dennis jealous. It's so much fun. Fucking asshole! You're walking. Through I like it too. Mark nine tanks. God damn you! <laughs> Keep at there's, it. There's some even cooler uh, developments with the Mark Nine as well. Oh my god! Due to time constraints that precluded the development of an entirely new tank design, the Mark Nine was created based on the Mark Five, albeit with an extended hull measuring 9.73 meters. Several key modifications were implemented to adapt the Mark V for its new role. The 150 horsepower Ricardo engine was relocated to the front of the tank, while the gearbox was positioned at the rear. Notably, the suspension girders were admitted entirely. This configuration resulted in an interior space measuring 4 meters in length, uh, 2.45 meters in width, and providing sufficient room for 30, or they say 30, but officially they say 50 soldiers or 10 tons of cargo. Of cargo, you get fifty guys in there. Apparently, wow! Just, could you imagine the Germans that rolling up and just like five squads just jumping out at once? That's <laughs> that's a lot of fucking sausages in that little area. That's a lot of uh, trench uh, trench shotguns. You know what, Dennis is right. Yeah, 
To ensure the chassis' structural integrity, the floor was reinforced with robust transverse girders. However, the infantry within the tank had to contend with control rods for the gears running along the roof and drive shaft running through the middle. So when you walk into it, Dennis, you see you've got to take a left turn. You've got to go walk around the front of it, you see, to get to get around to the uh, the outside on the you're, other you're side. Describing, you're describing it like it's an office building. You have to make the take the first left, and that's going to be the third door on your right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. It's like you know, you can, on the on the left, if you go too you go too far, if you hit the driver's compartment, you got to take a right around the engine. Uh, back back on the other right. Um, if you go too far, you're going to walk into the uh, gearbox. So if you you need to take a left out the main door. <laughs> Jeez. If you want a, if you want a, a window office, well, you're not going to get one because there are no windows. Um, <laughs> oh Should have been the driver. Yeah. Unfortunately, no seating provisions were made for the infantry within the tank. What? <laughs> so they got to stand. That's like his whole purpose. It's they like got to stand on the pit, suspension. <laughs> it's just Jesus. A mosh pit. The crew of the Mark Nine consisted of a driver situated on the, the left side and a commander positioned on the to the right of the driver. This layout marked the first time a British tank had such a configuration accommodated the prevailing traffic conditions in France. Additional crew, uh, additional crew members including included a mechanic and a machine gunner who could operate a machine gun from the hatch at the rear. Another machine gun was mounted in the front. Designed, in the, designed as an armoured personnel carrier, the Mark 9 exhibited elements of an infantry fighting vehicle. So it's the real world's first IFV as well. Along each side of the hull, eight loopholes were, were provided through which soldiers could fire their rifles. Of the sixteen of the total sixteen loopholes, four were located in the four oval doors, two on each side, that soldiers used for embarking and disembarking. Despite the use the use of thinner armor measuring ten millimeters in thickness, the opera, operational weight of the Mark Nine remained substantial at 29, 27 long tons or twenty seven metric tons. Its speed was limited to only 4.3 miles an hour, or 6.9 kilometers an hour. The tank had the capacity to carry supplies on a tray positioned on the roof, immediately behind the gunner's armored observation turret, which was the highest point of the tank at 8.7 feet, or 2.64 meters. Additionally, it could, could tow up to three loaded sleds. In an effort to enhance the internal conditions, Rickham installed a large silencer on the roof, along with ventilation fans. However, the absence of a separate engine compartment raised doubts on whether the Mark 9 truly achieved its objective of transporting a squad of infantry in a combat-ready state. This concern persisted despite the tank's severely limited operational range. They also, Dennis, excuse me, they also tried to make this amphibious. <gasps> no. no. Yeah. What? They tried to uh, amphibiaize the Mark 9 armored no. transport. No, I don't feel like that'd no. go well. He, he's not. He's, he's lying. There's no way. He's got to be there. There ain't no way, dude. This, I, I, I smell cap. I smell major cap going on up here. <laughs> One moment, you're, please. You're, you're lying, right, Callum? One moment, please, caller. Just got to find one. Like thing. you're you're yanking the no, chain no. like yeah, a whore yeah. on Broadway. I, I'm I'm being yanked. He's like he's got me on the chain. Like I'm not enjoying this. He's yanking it hard. <laughs> the Duck Amphibious Conversion Already a bulky vehicle, the probable reason the Mark 9 was selected as the basis for an amphibious tank, its displacement was improved by fitting drums on the front and sides. Long wooden boards were attached to, to the track links, but only one, si only one side of the board only. As they reached the curve of the track, they would project acting as paddles. 
pictures were made of a floating tank uh, in Hendon Reservoir in ni- 11th of November 1918, the day of the armistice. According to oral tradition, this vehicle was named the Duck, but there are doubts as to its veracity. The photographs show that a large rectangular superstructure had been placed around the cab from its superstructure pipes projected upwards, likely the outlets of bilge pumps. The vehicle was for the occasion manned, manned by Navy personnel. One moment, I've got a, I've just got to just, I just got to copy this. Harrison, there's no way. There's no way. It is kind of funny that it that came in on the Armistice Day. But why didn't you add pictures into the fucking slide, dude? You goober. Because I forgot about it. Because you forgot about it. How do you forget about this? I think it's. I think I was, I was gonna. I, was, I wanted it to be more of a secret. I think. Until now. So now you're a compulsive liar. I never said that. Don't me, trust this man. He's just hurting me. All he Look at what you're doing to the poor paid. Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> However, do you do you see, you see the pictures in podcast planning? I don't know. I haven't heard a fucking Discord notification. Yeah. <laughs> the most HIDF thing I've ever seen. Oh, God. <laughs> Ain't no way. Look at those guys standing next to it. They're like, yeah, this is our fucking land ship. That's a ship. <laughs> uh, that is so cool, isn't it? That is actually pretty neat. Now, could we... So we've got one more tank. The Mark 10. So the photo, I've got, I've got a preface. There are no photos of it at all. What I've found is an artist's representation of what it might have looked like. But there's there's not a lot to it. So the Mark 10 was a project that remained on paper and was aimed at enhancing the Mark 5, initially designated as the Mark 5 3 star. And essentially, it served as a contingency plan in case the Mark 8 project faced difficulties or failed. In such a scenario, production of 2,000 Mark 10 tanks was envisioned for the year 1919. The primary goal of the Mark 10 project was to create a tank using as many components from the Mark 5 as possible while improving its maneuverability and enhancing crew comfort. Yeah, it's just it's a paper panzer basically. Hmm. So, but it's okay because it's English. Yeah. yeah. So now that we've talked all about these different designs and you've seen all these kooky things, I guess you probably might want to build one. No, not really. Screw you. <laughs> I'm not sorry, particularly, Garrison. actually. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Garrison, did you just assume I was talking to you? I mean, I know, I'm, I'm talking to, I you know, know, the Cal, people who... I'm looking at that Mark 9, but if, beyond that... If, uh, if you remember, I was the most liked on the podcast, so I'm speaking for the people. You rigged that one, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I did not, I that was all Ezra. I, I smell cap. <laughs> I swear, that was all Ezra. However, if you want to find a model for a World War One tank, you got a few variants. You got Mark Ones and Mark Fours are the predominant ones. So, if you want a Mark One, male or female, look towards Tacom. They have quite a few good ones. Tacom, Tacom. Uh, and those are in thirty-fifth scale, as well as Mark Fours. Uh, Ta- Tamiya do Mark Four tanks as well. Uh, one of them is like fully. Um, Radio controllable. Uh, actually, they have uh, two. One with the the standard forward and back engine, but then there's also there's also the upgrade one that isn't there, Dennis, where it's like your full radio control 
trading all of that. So, yeah, I believe you can get that. Yep. I think I've, I've seen it. I've seen it for sale, and it is stupid expensive, though. Eh. Yeah. Uh, if you want it, he in, says eh. Yeah. If you <laughs> want it, in, you it is broke boy. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to. <laughs> I think it's like four hundred dollars or something. Yeah, it, Fuck! It, it, it's something ridiculous like that. Like the the one that just has a motor is actually pretty reasonable. It's like eighty bucks, but like it's a really good kit. The mm. other, the full radio control version was fun. Yeah, it's like really, really. They're pretty proud of that one. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you're looking for seventy second scale, you have the MHs. I'm not sure how good they are. Don't uh, know that range too much. Look at the box art, dude. Wait, yeah. actually, no, you would like that. <laughs> it sounded like an insult. I know it, it was an insult. I don't. The, the bad part is I don't know how. And then for uh, if you really want to punish yourself, you have the Airfix ones. They're all in one to seventy sixth scale. I actually have the the top left one, the the not like the the totally vintage vintage ones, but the top left one where it's sort of like the mid vintage. I actually have that one. I built that when I was eight. I say I built it. I got. I had a lot of help from my dad, and I just remember him trying to put the tracks on with great difficulty because they they weren't rubber band. They're actually like, but they're not like Lincoln length, but they are made of pla- uh, like more, more solid plastic. If you get my meaning, I just remember him swearing a lot. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, <laughs> like a lot, a lot. Like to one point, he was trying to do it, and he had to take it out to the shed away from me. So he could work on it. Piece of fucking shit, I swear to God. And if we go to the next one, if Ooh. you want to build the Mark IV Tadpole, well, Tacom do it, and I built it. This is the one that I bought in episode one, if you remember. Mm, yes. And this is what I did to it. And I have had a few comments saying they wouldn't have mud all the way up to the roof like that. Um, oh, for God's sakes. As someone who works in construction and, like, on muddy sites where you have caterpillar tracks that do that around a lot of things. Yes, that does does build up like that. Yes, it looks like that. And yes, just I have photos to show modern vehicles looking the exact same. Yeah. But if you want to build it, it's a bloody good kit. It's really worth it, especially the tracks. The tracks are amazing because they, they come separated from any sprues and they just clip together. So, and you, because you have about 130 per side or something ridiculous like that so yeah really good tracks really really good kit I, I highly suggest it and that's all she broke thank you very much for Lovely my TED work Calum thank you <laughs> yes very good job I just I like those tanks so that's why I wanted to do it so we're just going to have a brief intermission now and we'll be back with uh, Whips Hobby News. I know Dennis has got a lot to talk about, so I'll just run straight through it. Don't worry. <laughs> we are all back, so shall we do the Hobby News? Absolutely. I've actually got to go piss. What the oh, hell? Fuck <laughs> <sake. laughs> I'm kidding. We've been gone for a, the whole summer. Everyone's just like <laughs> waiting with me a breath, and this is what we bring out. <laughs> uh, uh, that's fucking funny. Love you guys. Monogram looking basket. <laughs> right. Shut the fuck up. Ain't no way the Spinosaurus 
is you are you know who's gonna do that? What? Who? Martin. I would oh, love God to see he that. Is. Yeah. So first up for hobby news we have from X Plus Model. They're releasing a Spinosaurus in one to thirty five one to thirty fifth scale. And I just wanted to include it because uh, you don't hear a lot of dinosaur releases, like especially on, on a lot of news sites. So when this come, came up, for all you dinosaur lovers, brand new Spinosaurus, Dude, I, 35th. Did you know Tamiya did dinosaurs? Oh, they did yep. a whole bunch of dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember I, I found out by Dennis, like, before we took our break. And I was I did not believe him. I really didn't. Had to Google it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind... Um, I wouldn't mind trying a dinosaur just for the color variations, you know? I feel like it'd be a good palette cleanser. Mm. Especially for, like, airbrush practice and stuff like that as well. I think it'd be good. Oh, dude, can you imagine doing, like, a like a vignette with, like, a di- two dinosaurs fighting and, like, behind a big rock or, like, two cavemen watching? I think yeah. it'd be kind of cool. Why are you quiet? Uh, just, you know, cavemen went around. You'd be, you'd, you'd, okay, you'd, it, it you'd doesn't matter. Would that be counted as rivet counting if it was a dinosaur kit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or would it be like teeth counting or something like that? Teeth counters. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the T-Rex had this many teeth. Bitch, <laughs> it's a fucking animal. <laughs> uh, but yeah, 35th scale Spinosaurus X, X plus model kit. Never heard of them before. Dennis? Coming out big and bold. Alrighty. Uh, that's my favorite fighter oh my god you're my co-worker that's my favorite fighter did you guys know that the mig 29 fulcrum is like the the fastest fighter ever made it's got infrared fucking infrared search and tracks and bro everybody's got irst that's not special it is when you don't have it (laughs) oh my god yeah, your radar yeah, warning I, receiver doesn't even point in the direction that the radar is coming from. What? What's the, the whole point of having it then? So you can pray to fucking the hey, Catholic shit, God of the a Russians. Is about to take you out. <laughs> <laughs> God, I think Ugh. I think Dennis hates the MiG twenty nine. I think he just might. Just I have nothing but loathing might. in my head for every single Russian fighter. I don't care. They all look stupid. <laughs> look so. Dumb. If you but haven't... it looks like an F-16. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> you can't say that. You can't be that, What about an yeah, F-15? Cool. <laughs> sure. Right, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm blocking this guy on Instagram. Uh, so <laughs> the worst for, I can do right now. For the listeners and viewers who probably might have guessed, so great, it's uh, GWH, that's Great Wall, isn't it? Of course it is. It's a Chinese yeah, great wall hobby. <laughs> so Great Wall Hobby are b- releasing in 72nd a MiG-29 Fulcrum, the uh, SMT-19-9-19. Uh, and you've just heard a review from Dennis about the MiG-29, <laughs> so oh, we God. should probably uh, go to the next one. <laughs> yo, 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 yo. I do want to say, though, I do want to say, special, <laughs> big special thanks to the design supervisors, Mr. Yufei Mao. Uh, it says they're at the bottom of the box. Like, yep, shout out to my boy Mal out here Does designing it? cheap looking ass Soviet jets. Proud. Of- oh fuck! 
<laughs> it just gets bitter and bitter. As if my day wasn't bad enough already. <laughs> oh, I'm welcome back, Dennis. Welcome uh, back, mate. Fuck you, Callum. And you're so many cats. <laughs> Love you, Callum. Mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me make uh, uh, let me make my wing a fucking triangle. Yeah, that, this is a good idea. <laughs> Ugh. Fire jets well, I made as a five year old. Tell, tell the nice people what this goofy ass plane is. One moment, please. So, first up by Trumpeter in 48 scale, they are releasing a JJ 7 trainer. A JJ the jet Jetplane? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, the JJ 7 is a design based on the J 7B fighter, which is like the Chinese version of the MiG 21, basically. Am I right, Dennis? Uh, why you? I guess. Yeah. Who do I look like? Was. <laughs> but yes, you are correct on that one. Yes. So the bro is hostile towards you today. I, 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 I got my second coffee of the podcast, so like I'm actually got energy now, and it's all hostile energy. <laughs> That's the best kind. So this is Trumpeter in 48. They're releasing two decal, two decal sets with it. Or markings, they all look exactly the same from each other. It's silver with numbering and shit. Very not very interesting. I'm, I'm I'm excited to see how they approach the shot cone on the front intake. Badly. Ugh, oh my god, Callum! What the fuck, man? To continue, to continue with Dennis's uh, demise, in 35th they're re- releasing a ZP RK DB. 96k6 Pantsia S1 tracked variant. So this is a oh, what? So yeah, it's a Pantsier 88 bait. Yeah, it's basically what it's like. The it's an upgraded. Um, it's like the uh, fuck Tunguska, like on steroids, isn't it? I'm sorry. The what? Okay, so basically, right? They took the Pantsia. Which is very similar to the Tunguska. And they threw it on tracks. Boom. The Tunguska. Okay, okay. I've... <laughs> I, so, I feel like Russians you're uh, had saying Tunguska, about the... right? Which was a combination 30 millimeter. I think it was 30 millimeter. 30 yeah, millimeter uh, surface to air missile system and sur- air tracking radar system all built into one tank, right? And then they put that on a pants, uh, what was called the pants here, which was basically a truck. Um, it was like just kind of like self-propelled uh, anti-aircraft battery. And then they threw it on a tank again. And I believe the main difference is this one has a much improved, uh, I believe, microwave band tracking radar. I-, I could be wrong on that, but like, yeah. Oh, it's got a nice microwave on it. Okay, nice. So the crew can heat up their MREs with no problems. Sure. <laughs> sure. Callum, our next episode has to be on like uh, radar bands. Oh god. If you write it, we'll do it. Oh god. <laughs> what do the nice people get with this uh ZPRK, Callum? Uh not a lot. There's uh two decal options. You have this nice tan one, then you have a nice oh. green one, and that's about it. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> The pain train for Dennis continues. <laughs> okay, to be fair, the Hummel looks cool as fuck. Eh? I, I do like that box art is dope. Look at that box art. Damn. Yeah. Zam. 
Yeah, so from Border Model in 35th, they're bringing out two Hummels, an early and late production um, Hummel. Yeah, looks cool. Hummel's about to humble the Red Army. Ooh. That's fucking Dark. tits. Something cool from iHeartKit. The, uh, was it the Duck, the Duck, Duck W? What are they? <laughs> <How do> you... <laughs> yes, the Duck. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Quack, bitch. <laughs> you need to make like an intercontinental ballistic missile system based on this for the HIDF. Honestly, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, of course, the duck is an amphibious truck made, made during uh, the Second World War. Very... I am about to slap a bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look at it. <laughs> it's a cool vehicle. I like them. It is cool. It just looks funny. And then you call it a duck. It just yeah. makes it even funnier. Um, so it comes with a trailer and all of that with about four markings. I'll tell you one fact about the duck that's kind of terrifying for it, for people operating it. So it has a winch to winch itself up beaches and stuff like that, right? You know where the winch okay. is located? Uh, Underneath the drivers. No. I, I like... it's, it's in the back, right? <laughs> the winch is in the back. See on the, the uh, box out on the left, you got that little gap in the front? Aye. So it passes through that between, and it dri- passes between the driver and the assistant. So the, the they have oh. a nice high tension cable, oh, literally nice. a, about a foot away from them. Fuck yeah. that! <laughs> a high tension cable which would never just snap. Yeah, <laughs> completely wouldn't. Nothing bif- could go wrong. No, it wouldn't completely bifurcate anyone who got in the way. No, yeah. So this is in thirty fifth, and I would love to have this kit. To be honest, you could Horizon Island this one up so much. Oh, you, it would be the law. Any uh, duck you buy would have to be Horizon Island. Yeah, yeah. Up next, Where, what theater was it used in? Uh, I think all, all like, of them. Um, yeah, the Europe war against and... Malda. <laughs> so up next from I Heart, I Love Kit, I Heart Kit, whatever they are. In thirty fifth, you have the M one two seven nine Utility JLVT UTL. Ebra, sorry, yeah, just a modern vehicle. I don't know jack shit about it. I'm just pointing it out. Garrison, this is up your wheelhouse, being a moraine and all. I did see and it's in the, It's in the cock tan as well. Now, I will say, I, I, I've never seen... I, I don't think I've seen this exact pickup variant, but I've seen one similar that's for comms, and it looked fucking tricked the fuck out. It is a cool looking truck. I'll give it that. I give it yeah. five months until you see these on the road in Wichita. Like people just Doubtful. drive them. I'm telling you, man, it's going to happen. They're going to hummer it up. They, no, they're going to figure don't. out a way. I'm telling you. Make them road legal. America. I mean, they like, are. They have to be road legal. Yeah. Like we, they used to drive this shit to fucking 29 Palms, which was like four hours away on the highway. <laughs> then you get dumbasses posted on Facebook. The military's doing something. Fucking it's like, Biden's it's called, gonna. It's like it's called transport. 
<laughs> yeah, people don't understand that. All the fucking time. Bitch. <gasps> so from from Hasegawa ah, in 148. Some proper fucking food. <laughs> <laughs> Next, there you are. Let us do it. I'll save the, some of the best to the last, and uh, well, for my one. So Hasegawa in 48, they are releasing the Nakajima E8 N1 Type 95 reconnaissance seaplane, also known as Dave Model One. <laughs> Dave. But, Dave. Yep, they called it Dave. And this is the detail up version, so it's a limited ed- edition. Uh, Dennis, can you you know what the what it, mean, that means? It narrows it down none at all because like literally everything Hasegawa makes these days is limited edition. But yeah, so they made photo watch parts for the rigging um, on the spy plane, as you can see in the photo. Main thing is this comes with that rigging um, in the box instead of having to buy it separately, which is like a one hand. Yay! Good job, Hasegawa. You you included something that's fundamentally necessary to build the kit. But like on the other hand, like I mean, easy upcharge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if it I... is a float plane, it is Japanese. I am basically young Harvey Low at this stage, so yeah, I'm buying it. I would honestly love to have this one as well. It's a cool looking aircraft. <sighs> And oh, a one to seven hundred from Tamiya, <laughs> the Waterline <laughs> series. We have the Mogami, the Japanese military self-defense force. I'm sorry, <laughs> the mommy. You said the mock, mo- <laughs> yeah, the Mogami, the mommy, the mommy, <laughs> the Mogami, <laughs> the <Sorry>. mommy. <laughs> So it's a descent defense ship FFM dash one. Fuck you both. Don't don't ever <laughs> don't ever let the Americans tell you that this is a destroyer. It's clearly just a coastal defense frigate. Okay, ignore the helicopter deck. <laughs> oh, okay, it's my turn. All right. Um, if you're British, this is old news. But yeah, Airfix is doing a forty-eight scale seeking because I guess why not? Um. Don't buy it. This it was... looks pretty garbage. I'm gonna be real with y'all. Jesus. <laughs> like, like this, this thing. was like this was like their their like big announcement for the year, wasn't it? Like they did an event and everything for it. Guess how Are much money this thing is retailing for? How much? Uh, fifty. One hundred and one dollars. Get the fuck out of here! I I have confirmation from Scalemates that it is currently being sold for one hundred and one dollars. Who's buying it? I have no idea. Like British people, I guess, but like the fucking goobers who still eat like the goddamn krauts are flying overhead. Like, yeah, no wonder. Don't even have anything cool like Royal Canadian Navy or like you know U.S. Navy. No, it's all gotta be British. I mean, this was like their big release, and it's like me detail. Yeah, not even that good. Damn, that bad. Um, That's actually kind of embarrassing, especially if they threw in a whole of it for this thing. Well, I guess yeah. the, the one like saving grace is that when you compare it to the only other seeking I can think of in that scale currently out there is like the Hasegawa one, and like it will be better than that. But it's like you know, to an extent. So they they went above the bar. It is but a barely. marginal evolutionary improvement for seekings, and having the British schemes is nice, but like. Again, realistically speaking, 
for a hundred dollars? I don't know, buddy. <laughs> not, That's not, a tough not sell. Quite worth it. <laughs> but what isn't a tough sell is Arma Hobby's forty-eight scale Hurricanes. So Arma Hobby, well known for basically uh, running circles around Tamiya and taking Edward's pants off in one seventy-two scale, has migrated to one forty-eight scale. Now they're doing the Hurricane Mark Two C. Uh, they've come out with both a Night Fighter and a Tropical Warfare variant. I so want that. I, I want the tropical. I want the tropical one just because I'd um, make that New Zealand one. Oh yeah, like I will <laughs> say, be cool. like, looking at the uh, early like reviews on the uh, test models. Damn, that surface detail is just beautiful. So they're yeah. doing it right. They, they, these guys are doing it right, and I think these are like I saw them at the hobby store too. I think it was like. 80 bucks for one, which is like, you know, pushing it for a World War II Warbird and 48 scale. But like at the same time, a lot of the, the uh, if you buy like an early production model, you also get 3D printed parts. Uh, okay. I think I've seen that. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah. Looks oh, that's a cool nice. thing to do. Um, Tacom somehow, like, despite not delivering their Apache models to, like, any North American hobby store, is continuing to issue new versions of that kit. Um, this one is basically the Block 2 late version of the uh, Longbow, and it is coming with some, basically, new parts to represent the... Okay. It's got pilot figures, and it's got an updated cockpit, which reflected the updated late model uh, avionics in the Longbow, uh, which basically was just the joint head-mounted queuing system. Um, it also has rotor folding parts, and yeah, another thing I'm going to say, not you know, one that did not live up to expectations. It is very. Uh, I feel like that could have just yeah. been a conversion kit. Tacom has well, made it especially like, the head tracking shit. Like, <laughs> can yeah. you see that? <laughs> I, I'm I'm out here tonight with my negative energy, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hot mic this real quick. Go for Last it. Last year, Tacom came out. With like this big promise of oh we're making the Apache and it's going to be amazing right it's going to be like this beautiful super detailed thirty fifth scale monster of a kit yeah no they like the parts literally don't fit together there are major issues with like not even seam lines like just straight up gaps and like steps and plateaus and it's like these things aren't that detailed they're not well engineered and they just don't fit and it's like they still manage to squeeze every single kit out of this it's like yeah. I wouldn't support uh, Tacom's shitty behavior by buying this, but that's just me. Damn, Tacom's actually catching the smoke right now. I I, I have smoke for Tacom today. Um, Border model is what continuing else do they do? the whole thirty fifth aircraft shtick with the uh, Spitfire Mark Five B. Um, this one uh, comes. It's interesting. It comes with metal gun barrels for the twenty millimeter cannons. Comes with photo etch parts, uh, clear parts, uh, so on and so forth, and has a fully detailed engine. Yeah, so I'd say you know, this is, uh, if you like 35th scale Spitfires, well, this is probably going to be a pretty interesting option. I'll do one. How many 35th scale Spitfires are there? I'd How many 35th like, aircraft are there? <laughs> I'd yeah, say that's actually the number a better of question. modern 35th scale aircraft kits being produced right now is like under a dozen. I'll call it there. I think they're all border, aren't they? As well. Or like maybe... Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Well, I mean, this is. Um, this is number four, BF004. So, yeesh. I mean, nice to see them uh, doing an yeah. allied aircraft, but at the same time, mm. like, okay, you know, nice. 
Uh, I think course, these would be great for dioramas. Well, that's, I think, what they're like, making it for. Because like, there is a picture from Normandy of a Sherman column passing a crash to Mark 5B, but fired by the side of a road. I feel like oh, they're going to for that photo. I would, do, uh, I would make that. Ace Model is producing a 135 scale Iltus. It's happening. It, it, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a thing. And it better be a good kit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one, Chief. Have you seen the sprues for it? No. Yeah, they look rancid. You know how like companies used to have this thing where they they wouldn't have a sprue, right? That was surrounded like all the parts would be surrounded by like an outer uh, tube. If that makes yeah. sense, like the the parts would just be molded onto a central part of the sprue, and then they would just like fan off of that. You just described like half my stash. Yep. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're doing the same thing here, and like that is not confidence inspiring. No, that's no. But but it is an Eltis. It is in thirty fifth scale, and it is plastic. So, uh, very excited to see this come out. I mean, it's about time. Ooh. Oh oh oh. So Academy has reboxed their earlier uh, K2 Black Panther as the uh, Fuck Polish. Fuck you, Academy. Yeah, yeah, straight up, up and down. Yeah, negative. <laughs> Come on, Greg, use that negative energy. Fuck um, you for reboxing, you fucking cunts. But there you go. You do get Polish decals for this. So if you didn't like the Hobby 2000 oh. rebox of the same kit, now you can buy the Academy rebox of the same kit with the same decals. Have at her. If you're buying this shit, you're fucking okay. Never mind. Now, now for the little the rumor mill because this isn't confirmed yet. So, look at that know, old guy. We know that Tobias is coming out with an F4 Wildcat. We know this. This has been confirmed. Sometime in 2023, they're coming out with it, and it's in 48 scale. What do we not know yet? We believe. Uh, what kind of figures are coming out with? We believe it's an FM1. When the FM1 was basically one of the uh, General Motors produced uh, copies of the Wildcat, which was used by Commonwealth forces on escort carriers. So as you can see here, this is a Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm version. This is going to be in the kit. This is a very iconic scheme. And I believe, again, non-good authority, it's going to have two very high quality, like you know, modern 48 scale figures, one in the cockpit and one standing on the wing. And the wings will fold back. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm interested to see what they do with this, though, because, like, it comes out at a pretty bad time because, like, Edard is also doing the uh, Wildcats. And, like, they're just demolishing all the competition with this. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for the Tamiya Wildcat at some point. <laughs> Watch it never come out. <laughs> they, they just blew all the <laughs> So up next we have our works in progress. Although there's mainly one person who's been working on a lot of things lately. So Dennis, yeah, I had a crack feed summer. Um, <laughs> I, I I was like I I did the math. I was averaging a kit every four days, start to finish. Jesus, Jesus fuck. Yeah. Okay. So also I'd like to point out I only did aircraft this summer, which is really weird. But like yeah, I, I strip was like only aircraft. For yeah, that kind of bothered me, not going to lie. Yeah, that, that was fine. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. <laughs> All right. Boom. Okay. So, the first cocaine-fueled uh, model was this. This is a 1995 Tamiya N1K1 Kawanishi Kyofu. 
Um, this was a floatplane fighter built by the IJN in 1942. Uh, this thing is massive. Like it's bigger than the P-47. I should point out. But Jesus. yeah, it's a floatplane fighter. Uh, it was be later developed into a land-based fighter called the Sheedan, and that was probably about the best uh, fighter in the Pacific in the whole war. But um, <laughs> the float, I, 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 no cap, no cap. Andrew's Corsair. It was, I think, faster than the Corsair. Suck my balls. All right. Uh, but yeah, I uh, built this kit together. It was really, really nice. Um, being a 90s kit doesn't have as much surface detail, but like the fit was impeccable. And of course, having that really nice big pontoon was just, just lovely. Not uh, going to lie, you did one... a fucking awesome job with it. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, the next one was actually an Academy kit. This is Academy's 172 scale F117 Nighthawk. Uh, this one, the main modification I did with this was I used the Ares resin cockpit uh, to threw that in, basically painted that up all nice and opened up the canopy on it. Uh, overall, really, really nice kit. Frustrating as hell to get the cockpit into place, but definitely I'd say worth it in the end. Uh, one of my favorite aircraft, and I think it came out semi-decent. It's looking pretty good. Ooh. This oh, is the uh, current me like holder. It. This is a 48-hour build. Uh, this is Airfix's uh, Spitfire Mark 14. This is the civilian schemes version. So this is out of the box completely. Uh, it represents Racer 80, which was a uh, Mark <coughs> 14 that was used by a Canadian pilot in the Ohio Air Races in 1949. Um, yeah, it's did that in a bare metal finish and uh, yeah, did some heavy weathering on it. This one's pretty, you'll, you'll like this one, Calum. So this is a Hobbycraft Canada, uh, D. Havilland Canada Otter. Uh, I basically did this in a uh, Canadian Air Force search and rescue scheme. And yeah, built as a float plane because, I mean, it comes with floats, so you have to. But one thing I did to modify it was I scratch built the uh, transport dolly for it. Oh, nice. I did yeah. not know that you did that. That looks cool. It, and... It's a, wasn't a bad kit, honestly. Like it, it, it was pretty semi decent. I mean, for a hobby craft, that's a compliment. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> that's a flawless kit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, arguably, I'd say the PS de Resistance for the summer was the one seventy two scale Arma Hobby FM two Wildcat. Uh, yeah, this is definitely the most detailed model plane I've done like ever. Uh, you can see here working on the. Uh, I believe that's the wasp radial but yeah working on the radial engine like wiring it with photo etch and everything got all the dials in the cockpit but yeah i built this as one of the target tug aircraft from uh johnstown pennsylvania after the war uh did a little bit of yellow on that but very happy with that one that shit was fucking awesome how many coats of paint did that take one wow what's your yeah, base just, coat uh my base coat was pink I used a pink base coat really? and like white on like the panel in, inside the panels, and I just hammered it with yellow. And uh, yeah, dude, that looks really good. If you're ever painting uh, yellow or red, pink is an amazing base coat. Noted. And then the last one of the uh, summer was this: the YF twenty three one forty eight scale from Hobby Boss. Kept the weathering on this one very light because like the real ones flew for like five hours, so you know, not not much <laughs> point to panel lining it. But yeah, that's the uh, big one of the summer. 
And then um, right before going back to school, I met a fellow podcast host, Jack, at his place up in, uh, in northern Ontario. And we painted his Volks, uh, sorry, Bombardier Eltis uh, with house paint. We airbrushed house paint onto it. Mm. Yeah. Doing that one-to-one scale modeling. We were quite literally doing one-to-one scale modeling, yes. I can imagine trying to like brush it, paint a uh, camo at that scale is much easier. <laughs> Actually, you would be surprised. Uh, we we were kind of confounded by the whole camo painting process. If I'm going to be honest, like we were trying to get like a hard edge to the black, but not completely hard edge. And yeah, it, it was just he, he'll tell you all about it <laughs> when he's on. <laughs> when he's on. No, no one else has whips. No, uh, hang on, hang on. Slacking. Well, I just got done uh, cleaning my sh- my brush off, so big slacking, being slacking. Callum, what have you been doing lately? Uh, 3D printer stuff. Nice. Because I got the 3D printer, I printed off that design for the Musaru Cup, but there's like two of the launches that I probably should redo, just because like corners came out quite rounded and it's not very like good. Yeah, but it's interesting. First time using a 3D printer and all that, so it's a fun lesson. I needed to consult with Floki for a lot of things. I was just asking him every step of the way, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I think we lost Garrison. No, I'm I'm throwing these four pictures up right now. Hang on. Got the 114 and the Toji primed. Got the inside of the 114 mostly painted up. Uh, on the right, top right, got the uh, first two layers of the base coat on most of the figures, minus the two that are glued to the tow jeep. Uh, this is for the HIDF build, by the way. And then bottom left, I just took that using past patching plaster. Uh, most of that's just kind of thrown on with the hand uh, against that back wall that'll be underneath the underpass. I use a brush to kind of brush up, make it as even as possible. Tomorrow I will sand it. And then just keep adding layers until it looks like concrete. Uh, same with the pillars. And then bottom right is just miscellaneous shit like weapons. Uh, the two crew members for the 114, they're in the naval, I say navy, they're in field, field blue overalls. Thought that was going to look pretty cool. But uh, yeah, this is my first actual project back at the bench since uh, the Normandy diorama became a shitstorm. That's looking awesome, man. I can't wait to see how that M114 comes out. Thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked, too. I was I was going to paint the outside tonight, but I got to finish the inside first, so I said, fuck it, I'll just work on figures and shit. That's awesome. Yeah, well, make sure to get those jungle plants, and I can't wait to see you cover everything with that as well. You know what I'm uh, planning on doing with a bunch of the jungle plants? What's that? The uh, you know how like fish tanks have a bunch of uh, like jungly looking plants or tropical looking plants you can put inside like the fake ones. Oh yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, that's what I'm planning on doing. I'm gonna go to like a a cheap fucking pet store and get a bunch of those and you know prime and paint them up myself. Try and work on contrast and whatnot. I think that's gonna be pretty fun. That and the the three palm trees I'm planning on making with this. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, absolutely. 
Where's uh where's soundboard man? Vaughn's soundboard man. I accidentally muted myself. <laughs> I oh, might have said a few things. It's like it's like it's like, hang on, this bitch ain't answering me. What the fuck? Uh, oh. what, what, what were your questions, soundboard man? <laughs> oh no, Dennis kinda answered it. So Oh, right so. So speaking of the Horizon Island group uh, group build, <clears throat> so that's still going till the 6th of October. Of course, the Normandy campaign, uh, that one that one finished what about 10 days ago. So we're going to So if you have finished yours, uh, everyone will need them all sent in, then we can have a look at them, decide on winners, stuff like that, but yeah, we'll be sending out, you know, socials saying all of that kind of stuff on where to send stuff and whatnot. So, but until then, Horizon Island Defense Force Group build you have till the sixth of October. And uh, just keep in mind, HIDF group build is just for fun, and literally anything goes. So. And the last slide, of course, Dennis. Since you're you uh, so much back. to our Patreon supporters, uh, Paul Gallagher and Lord Floki. If you guys want to support the podcast, help keep the lights on here, because it does actually require some money to run this thing, uh, please think about maybe chipping in a couple bucks a month. It gets you access to exclusive content, such as uh, outtakes and special episodes. So yeah, again, thank you so much to our Patreons. Uh, If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, the link is in the description of the video. And on that note, gentlemen... Summer time is over. We are back. That was an episode. That was an episode. If you can call it that. <laughs> oh, God. Alrighty, well. Bye, everyone. See us. Deuces.